If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. This week, we're exploring the philosophy and science behind physical objects. Are the everyday objects that surround us an illusion? Or is science trapped in a philosophical fantasy from which it needs to escape? To help us discuss the existence of things, we're joined by three leading thinkers, chemist Peter Atkins, philosopher of science James Ladyman, and novelist Joanna Cavenna. Our experience is always mediated through the self, so you never escape that. Even in the most beautiful science, there's always a perceiver doing the perceiving. There's always someone there. If you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Julian Bagini. We're going to start with three-minute opening positions, which they'll set out their broad stalls, um, with the very broad question, are everyday objects around us illusory? Peter. Mm. I, I intend to um, take an extreme view, which I will... Uh, attempt to defend against all opposition throughout the, this debate. If there is any opposition, of course, it might be accepted immediately. Um, that, and uh, it, it's up to you to judge whether I, I'm actually pretending to adopt this or whether I really believe it or whether I'm really pretending to pretend, etc. Um, I'm, I'm going to take the view that ultimate reality is mathematics. Uh, that everything that there is, is somehow or other, and I, I will have to explore what I mean by somehow or other, uh, simply a kind of realisation of mathematics. And I think it, the, the clue to why I think that is that mathematics is such an important component of our description of physical reality. It's, it's extraordinary that mathematics proves to be the language, turns out to be the language of, um, of discovery and, uh, and comprehension, if you like, in the, in the physical sciences. Why does mathematics suit so well the, the physical reality that we uh, seem to encounter. And there are all sorts of analogies between um, physical reality and, um, and mathematics. I mean, think of the integers 
uh, once you've got the integers, as Kredaka said, um, that the rest is doing things, mathematics is doing things to the integers that they weren't intended to in the first place. And out of that springs the, the whole of the construct of mathematics and all its elaborate forms. Um, but where do the integers come from? They come from the empty set and sets that contain the empty set and so on. So you can build up an, an idea of the integers from absolutely nothing. And this world, of course, sprang from absolutely nothing. So there are deep analogies, I think, between the emergence of this elaborate world and the emergence of an elaborate mathematical structure. But then somehow or other, and maybe this will unfold in the course of our discussion, uh, we've got to find out what it means for tangible objects to uh, be manifestations of mathematical entities. Thank you. There's a, a lot to unpick there. I hope we get to unpick at least some of it. Um, James. Right, so I want to begin by saying that there are some things that we can see which aren't real and some things that are real that we can't see. I think both those statements are pretty obvious, but just give you the... Uh, example, and this will make the distinction between an illusion and something subjective or private to imaginary to me. Take a rainbow. Why isn't a rainbow real? Well, for a very long time, people have thought to be real, it's not enough that everyone agrees that they can see something there. The point about a rainbow is that you can only perceive it through vision. So it's a public illusion. Everybody sees it but you can only see it through, only encounter it through vision. It's not possible to bump into a rainbow or hear a rainbow, encounter a rainbow in any other way than through this one sense. And so it's right to distinguish between a rainbow and the table. Because the table, although I might think, okay, I get limited information about it by seeing it, but I can also bump into it and I can also weigh it and other, pe other people bump into it and encounter it as well. So with that distinction in mind, the distinction between an illusion and uh, what's, what's private, and also just to establish that there are things that we can see that aren't real, like rainbows, we also need to admit that there are things that are real that we can't see, such as, for example, electromagnetic radiation outside the visible, spe visual spectrum, uh, visible spectrum. We all know that that radiation's there because we get our mobile phone signals, right? We all know that diseases that we can't see can kill us. We know that radiation that we can't see can kill us. So there are definitely things that exist that common sense doesn't tell us anything about, which we wouldn't know existed if we hadn't done further investigation. And so, in general, we shouldn't think that common sense is a particularly good guide to what there is. Now, science tells us about loads of things that exist, and um, I don't want to go on for too long at this point. I'll have some more to say later, but I would say that Really, we don't need to put the issue in terms of everyday things versus subatomic particles or fields or whatever. We can put the issue in terms of scientific kinds that aren't fundamental and particles or fields or whatever. So let's just think about Peter's subject matter in chemistry, molecules. Those things are not fundamental in science. They're higher-level entities. There are lots of things like that that science studies, um, big entities that are nonetheless real, physical, you might say, but not the ultimate fundamental stuff is, if there is any such thing. So if we're going to deny the existence of everyday things just because they're not fundamental, then we need to deny the existence of lots of scientific kinds as well, which I don't think is a sensible thing to do because 
these are part of what we've learned to take account of in order to understand the world in the same way that we have to take account of, of tables. So, uh, short answer is yes, there are lots of physical things that uh, we only know about through science, and there are some things that we encounter in common sense that aren't real, but lots of things that are. It's a very uh, sort of commonsensical position, but I think important to note that it's common sense to think that in the light of the development of advanced science that tells us that there's lots of stuff like microwaves that we otherwise wouldn't know about. And so it wouldn't have been common sense to think what I think uh, you know, in previous ages. It just is now. Okay, thank you. Joanna. Thank you very much. Um, so this is a kind of really interesting question, which has this huge history behind it, as we've been hearing. And if you think of philosophy as a kind of boxing match, why not? Um, in, the, in the sort of red corner, there are the physicalists, the materialists, who you know, adopt the view that the physical world is what we can be sure of, the stuff that we can kind of be sure of, look at, make sense of. Um, and you have Johnson in refutation of Berkeley, you know, I've kicked the stone, my foot hurts, that kind of refutation. Um, and then in the sort of blue corner, you have the idealist tradition, the anti-materialist tradition, this idea that really you can be sure only of your mind, that's the thing you're sure of. And everything else is a bit dodgy, potentially. And this goes back to the ancient Eastern traditions, the Upanishads, where creation begins with I am. That's the first kind of moment in creation, and then the world. Um, and also Berkeley's kind of idea, which we now see as subjective idealism, this idea that for him it was a kind of, it was a synthesized reality because of God, you know, because of the mind of God perceiving everything. So it was all okay. You can then kind of, start playing with that. If you're Borges, for example, um, the great sort of uh, writer of the 20th century who had this idea, if you don't have God anymore in that tradition, what happens? And he had a short story called Talon Ukbar, Tertius Orbis, where he imagines if subjective reality is the only thing, then the danger is that this tent would disappear if someone wasn't looking at it, and it would be a real problem. And so entire civilizations have been saved by a flock of birds flying past just at the right moment, that kind of idea. So, you know, you can have a lot of fun with the extremities of these theories. Um, and physicalism gets into terrible trouble with the self. This problem, because you can't find a physical thing called the self, it doesn't exist, and you get the sort of arch-physicalist view that the self is an illusion, which leads to that wonderfully mad sentence, I myself believe there is no self, which you know, causes all sorts of fascinating problems of how a non-existent self can refute its own reality. So I think you know, it's a really fascinating question. At the risk of sounding like I want to stop the boxing match, which is, you know, I, I, I don't at all, um, asking the pugilists to be friends, I think there's also one further point that I'd like to make about this irrespective of whether we're going to arrive at a sense of the truth of everything now at this moment, which I fear we may not, there is this possibly a, a fact that we might all accept, which is that we're all having a subjective experience. We're all here as a unique human seeing the world. And so our experience is always mediated through the self. So you never escape that. Even in the most beautiful science, there's always a perceiver doing the perceiving. There's always someone there. And that's kind of the uh, sort of interim position I'd like to take. Thank you. Thanks so much for those. Uh, it's kicked off. I mean, I want to go back to something James said, because, I mean, Joanna's comments there, you know, about the idea of the self and somehow the self disappears in a purely physicalist kind of understanding of things. And, of course, but lots of other things do. And, and, and I just suppose the problem I've got here is, you know, we, use, we talk about what's real, 
or what exists. But isn't, isn't that a bit too crude? Isn't it a question of matter of in what sense people, things are real, in what sense they exist? Because, James, when you said a rainbow isn't real, but there, isn't there a sense in which it is real? It, it's real as a, as a phenomenon that occurs. It's sure, sure, it only occurs for certain creatures in a certain position with certain sense perception. But then, you know, that's true of any kind of experience. Ex any kind of subjective experience is, you know, only exists with a certain kind of uh, uh, creature there with a, a, a certain perception. Would we not want to say those things are nonetheless real in a way, that they do exist? If you like, but I still think the distinction stands between a f real physical object and a rainbow. So, I mean, you might as well say Santa Claus is real because everyone talks about him, so, so there's a phenomenon. But it's not particularly helpful when someone's asking, is Santa Claus real, if your first answer is yes, because they're going to think Santa Claus is a person. So a, a physical, a, you know, a body, a, 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 a human organism, whichever. Yeah. Right? So uh, I think you want to make the distinction between um, physical objects and perceptions, because not all of our perceptions are veridical. But the refraction responsible for the for the r rainbow itself yeah. occurs even in the absence of the perceiver. So in some right. sense, the rainbow has occurred even if it has not been perceived. One could say. I mean, the conditions for the, for the, for the perception of it. Uh, uh, I think it's a bit tricky. I would say the rainbow, the rainbow itself, no. I mean, I'd say what, you'd, what you've got is light being refracted. I would say the rainbow... So what name, do you mean by the rainbow? Then? Well, I think the, the rainbow is, is the appearance in the visual field. Ah, that's certain so you're, so you're defining it as something that can be perceived. Uh, is, I was doing because is, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was saying... I mean, my, my initial beginning was to say the rainbow is a public illusion. So yeah. to that extent, of course, I'm saying it's, it's, it's real because it's a real illusion, but it's not a real physical object. Yeah, but that's the point. <laughs> you're saying real physical object. Now, I can see that. It's not a real physical object. But, but, the physics uh, but, but are there, there, are there things that are real that aren't physical yeah. objects, right? I mean, why are physical objects colonizing? They don't have a monopoly on the no, adjective real, do they? No. So a real physical object is fine, whereas not real without physical object in there, I think, is potentially misleading, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, I haven't said anything about what we mean by physical here. I suppose what... what Everyone sort of takes it for granted that we know what we mean, and part of my point was to say, well, if you talk about physics, there's a whole range of things in physics, from subatomic particles all the way through to atoms, all the way through to condensed matter, all the way through to vast, you know, interstellar stellar structures. And now, none of, there are lots of things in physics that aren't fundamental. So if the threat is supposed to be, you know, because there's fundamental stuff, then the emergent stuff isn't real, then that's not going to divide between physics and everything else. That's going to divide out loads. That's going to exclude lots of stuff within physical science. Uh, as for the self, I mean, I say it may be a bit of a red herring because there's lots of people who convince themselves there's no, no self through nothing to do with physicalism. So in the Buddhist tradition, for example, they would convince themselves the self is an illusion. Um, and that, that's nothing to do with physicalism. They just think when you, when you try to find the self, you can't find it. But what do you mean? I mean, the self is just self-awareness, isn't it, really? It's being aware that one exists, basically. Well, what's, what's, I, what's, I, I think we can't go down this rabbit hole. I think we've got to go down the self. We've got to go down a discussion on the self. I mean, maybe a little bit, but I think we want to stick to the moment to... Um, we can just try and keep it a little bit narrow at this stage. Because this point about what's real, and, and James talking about real physical objects, because 
in, in the, the position you were advocating originally, not telling us whether you genuinely believed it or not, was in a sense that what's most real is maths, which presumably is not a physical object? No, but it's manifest as a physical object. Um, and that's the difference, really. Somehow or other, mathematics underlies everything there is and manifests itself as entities. Um, and I suppose you have to step back a little bit and say, well, uh, what, what, are, what are sensations? And I think all sensations are touch. Um, in the sense, obviously, touch itself is touch. But listening, hearing, is also touch of molecules on the, you know, the diaphragm of the ear. Um, sight, in a sense, is touch because um, uh, it depends upon the, the shape of a retinal molecule inside a, a, a protein. And as soon as the light hits it and changes its shape, the touch of it, that molecule to its cup that is held in um, changes and it jumps out and that sends a signal to the brain. So I think that all um, sensation... Uh, human sensation and animal organistic sensation boils down to touch. And then you have to say, well, in what sense can you touch mathematics? Mm. And it's, go can on, I yes. say something about the maths thing? Um, so this idea, you know, maths obviously says a huge amount about the world. You know, I think it would be extremely arduous and tiresome for you all if I were to deny that. But, you know, it doesn't say something about everything. And I think it's the claims of maths as a theory of everything that I'd resist. Um, it doesn't say anything about how I felt about the veggie burger that I didn't quite finish as I was coming to the tent. You know, I had lots of complex feelings about that. It doesn't say, you know, a lot actually about the sort of meaning of, you know, our lives, fundamentally how we feel about the fact that we're all finite and having this extraordinary moment of experience. And, you know, there's a joke about this in The Hitchhiker's Guide. You know, Douglas Adams got there ages ago, which is, you know, they, they create this great big computer and it's going to number crunch the meaning of life and it's going to come out with the absolute mathematical answer, and they go along saying, what's the answer to the question, the meaning of life, the universe, and everything, and it says 42. And they think, well, hang on, did we ask the wrong question? You know, because obviously it doesn't really tell you everything that you wanted to know. So, but that, that, that is a parody, isn't it? Yes, but it's saying. the right, it's, so, it's parodying that notion that the sort of Pythagorean, you know, yeah. the sort of mathematical perfect utopia... What's wrong can with that? Repl- <laughs> you know, can to... <laughs> well, it might be your utopia... Yeah. But that there are other, I think it's trying to reveal that that simple numerical answer may lead to the further question of, is there another sort of but, no, answer but, we might also have? But if you think all these emotions that you're alluding to are really um, consequences of the chemical processes going on in, in our, our system, they are physical processes that depend upon the biochemical processes going on within us. So then you have to say, well, what do you mean by a biochemical process? And that comes down, I think, to the changing shapes of molecules. But I think and once again, to... you, you are forced to say, well, in what sense are those shapes the manifestation of mathematics. But I think that's Peter, gone into smallism. And you well, I was going to say, Peter, why are you stopping so, at molecules? I mean, you, you, you're privileging that as a level of description, but we could just say, no, but the molecules are um, particular excitation patterns of quantum fields, right? And there's, you know, an ontology of physics lower at, at, a, at a smaller scale than that of molecules. And, the, and indeed, the ontology of molecules doesn't make any sense without that smaller scale ontology, right? So... Yeah. Um, so it was, I think a it's conven- some- it was a convenient resting place. Good. Okay. On, 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 on the, yeah. 
on the way to true discovery. Right. So but, no, exactly. You know, we, but I think I, I, I think that the, the the brief was trying to get us to puzzle about the existence of things other than the most fundamental things. Um, so, and I and I think what's clear is that even if we're um, restricting ourselves to science, and even if we're restricting ourselves to physics, there's lots of stuff that isn't fundamental. So we wouldn't want to eliminate everyday physical objects for not being fundamental. That's that would be no, my point. No, no, but but um, it's a reductionist program that we're on. We're 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 saying okay, there's lots of stuff out there, and we're trying to get to the heart of that stuff and to see what really where it all springs from, and not denying the manifestation of things in general. But it's lovely to get down to the constituent elements. That's really wonderful. Although then we could ask about the sort of ones that, you know, have names taken from James Joyce, like quarks, and that, yeah. you know, kind of keep disappearing think, you know, when we're trying to find them. But it's wonderful to get there. That's fantastic. Yeah. But also, there are these emergent properties. There are these kind of things that sort of evolve. You yeah, know, the absolutely. Opposite, but always to think that the reality is in these, the, the smallest possible. Well, science goes in, t- in two it's directions. A, uh, science, goes in, science goes in two directions. It delves down to discover. Which is and that's, that's, that's the reductionism, which is, is, prof- is probably much simpler to go in that direction from going in the opposite direction. That is, seeing how emergent uh, properties evolve, as it were, or spring from this structure. And I think, if I can just finish that sentence and take up a point, I think the ultimate entity from which this world is, and you might remember, I might be pretending, um, and I, I think the ultimate entity is either one or zero. I love this that you're, so Leucippus, the originator of the idea of the atom, is believed not to be real. And now you're arguing that your defence of atomism may also not be real. I mean, this is just too postmodern. But listen, but I'm always trying to... Oh, I did, oh, dangerous. What, careful, watch it, watch it. Sorry, I, I, you can never you be You didn't so finish smart. your veggie burger. You're still a bit hangry, aren't you? I can tell. Um, now, listen, I just want to get clear, though, because it, it sounds like on, a, on, the, on the sort of unifying theme, we might all be, you might all be agreeing, and I want to check this is right, because, okay, so on this question, you know, are, what is real, what is not real? Jay's made this point that there's this sort of odd kind of way of looking at things, which is to sort of claim that only what is most fundamental from the point of view of science is, is real, and other things are somehow illusions. And that kind of, it doesn't really make, that doesn't really make sense, really. And you, you find this sort of slippage all the time. But if, if, it's, if it's true that there are different levels of organisation, and that, you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not only the most fundamental that are real, then a lot of things people say when they deny the reality of things is simply drawing a line at what level of description is real at an arbitrary point. So, for example, people who talk about, you know, thoughts and ideas aren't real, uh, you know, they're just illusions, it's just brain processes. But brain processes are very far from fundamental in terms of, you know, physical matter. You know, they're, 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 they're very complicated biological systems, and then you have to go down to the atomic, subatomic, etc. So I, I just want to check, it seems like, and maybe we don't, that you all kind of agree that whatever is most fundamental, and for you it's maths, for you it may not be, I don't know, don't know what it is for Joanna, whatever is most fundamental, it doesn't follow from whatever is most fundamental that everyday objects aren't real, and presumably it doesn't also follow that things like thoughts and feelings and emotions aren't real. Has anyone got any issues with any of that, or clarifications or disagreements? I think that's right, and a clarification is that I'm not sure that there will be a fundamental ultimate description. Now, right. maybe there will, and it's surely a laudable kind of project to pursue more and more 
deeper explanations. And often what we're talking about here is higher, higher energy scales or smaller and smaller length scales, but that just may be, may be a, a limitation of our perspective. But suppose, suppose there isn't going to be this ultimate final resting point of a fundamental reality. Then what we've got is just what, we're, what we had to start with, which is just like you said, I mean, lots of things at lots of different scales. Um, and that's it. That's what there is. Yeah. And now, how, how now, depressing that is. Sorry? How depressing that would be. Why is it depressing? What? Well, because you want there to be more to all of this than all of this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, why not? Dare I say it, that's a rather emotional view. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> why most, is it depressing? Can you explain why it's depressing? Yeah, I mean, it's just saying that, that we live in a zoo basically, of the, all sorts of different entities, and the, there's no organisation. I mean, it's a bit like before the periodic table was discovered, when there are all these elements, oxygen, sulphur, no one thought that they were brothers and sisters. And suddenly... Well, it could be an organised zoo, Peter. What? It could be an organised zoo. Well, if... Uh, I mean, it is an organised zoo, because we understand lots of things about the interrelationships but, but, between uh, these entities, the, right? So, yeah, exactly, but that was because we understand how the the properties of the elements spring from the properties of the atoms of the nuclei Exactly, but we'll still, we still understand but, that even if we don't find a fundamental level. I mean, if we understand chemistry in terms of electromagnetism, yeah. right, and the formation of bonds in terms of energy and the Coulomb force... We still have that understanding. Whatever future science yeah, comes up with... it's incomplete, right? though, isn't it? I mean, the world but is... The, 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 I think the driving, the driving force of science is, I think, that the world is simple. Uh, that, and we scientists are looking for the simplicity, the ultimate simplicity that underlies all this complexity. And I think that is the, the, the road that science is, is on, and it should not be presumed to be without end. I think, you see, I think maybe you could say the opposite. I mean, that, yeah. that, that science has revealed to us that the world is much, much more complicated than we could no. possibly have imagined. No. Oh, seriously, what? You're talking about the, what, one cell in the human body, right? The functioning and yeah. structure of that cell and the processes that take place in it are yeah. mind-bogglingly complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. so... But so, they spring from an inner simplicity. And I think you philosophers... Uh, are faced by the complexity of the world and you can't see that it springs from an inner simplicity. Can I just come in on Got that it. beautiful metaphor that, that Peter's just used? It springs from an inner simplicity and I just wanted to talk about language as a result of that very poetic term that he's just used, which is that we're having this debate in a language which is fraught with wonderful metaphors and indeterminacies and echoes and associations and we all use it in our own partially completely idiosyncratic way, and yet we commune through it. It's a really paradoxical system. And so whenever we get into these debates, there's that extraordinary question of the malleability of metaphor as well. The Big Bang is an amazing metaphor, but it has this ancient history of cosmic eggs. That was Georges Lemaitre's first idea, was that he'd found the cosmic egg cracking open, this ancient metaphor that goes back to the Orphic eggs and back to the ancient Egyptians. These great associations within language that are part of this debate. So the imprecision is wonderful, I think. And I think if we kind of detach from that, we enter this sort of realm of a kind of pseudoscience of a very beautiful, um, a very malleable language as well. And also, Borges, to just refer to him briefly again, said, do we really think that? Is it really possible that this lovely kind of beautiful grunting of primates, which is what we're always engaged in, 
corresponds absolutely with the whole of reality. Is that really likely? Lovely as it is. <laughs>
uh, income inequality goes like a power law. There are mathematical relationships all over the place, and you would find that if you analysed Hamlet, it would have a very high degree of complexity you could measure mathematically by looking at the, num the, the, the amount of vocabulary used. So you could quantify that. Um, that's a separate issue from whether you could give an ultimate explanation of it, right? Those, those are two different things. So we don't want to confuse them. And then, and then the other thing I would say is that I think, I mean, I completely agree that it's a big part of science to try to find ultimate, simple grounds for things. And I think with chemistry, you know, it is true, actually, you can predict a lot from quantum mechanics using supercomputers about the structure of molecules. But I would say science is also interested in describing just at a particular um, level or scale of description, there are still questions that you just want to know the answer to. And, you know, you might want to know, for example, um, whether there's a planet that's, you know, got liquid water on it. And that's a scientific question. It's not a question about, about ultimate reality. Um, so, and I would, I would sort of disagree that really there's a, you know, where did it all come from? I'm still quite interested in where it's all going. Well, we can't do much about that. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, in, in the long term. Mean, what do you mean by that? Where, where, you just, where, you, where it's all going? Well, there's an obsession with origins, but I mean, it's, it's um, no less important for us as human beings to understand the future. In fact, you might say more. Um, so so to, cast, to describe science as something that's um, really about explaining where everything comes from is a bit tendentious. I mean, science is, you know, cosmology is equally much about the future of the universe as about the past of the universe. And um, for us as human beings, I would say, I mean, of course, there's more to science than prediction, but um, I mean, for most people, the value of science in the end is that it enables them to manipulate and predict and control the future rather than the past. But on this mathematics point, you, you made this distinction about you know, fundamental an account and kind of descriptions. And you sort of like power laws with, you know, petrol stations, et cetera, et cetera. It just does seem to me that, that aren't we in danger, maybe this is true as well, that because we can, it seems mathematics is hugely powerful, we can always find a mathematical kind of formula to explain, to sort of describe what's going on, that we kind of tricked into thinking that maths is somehow the reason why it's that way. The reason why there are these, these distribution of, petrol stations in, in a city, for example, can only be understood if you understand something about use of cars, fuel efficiency, lots of things which are not mathematical. The fact that you can then, you know, find a mathematical formula that will kind of predict, accurately describe it is, is, is not the same as therefore explaining why it's the case. Is, uh, is that but right? a lot of science, well, almost all science, begins by identifying patterns. And, uh, and this correlation of the distribution of X in a, in a field of Y is um, is interesting pattern. But then you have to look for the reasons for it, and those you find in economics and anthropology and all the other things. Can I just say, yeah. so when you talk about that, it's very interesting, you say science establishes patterns, then you look. And so that's interesting that there's a kind of, you know, there's a slippage, there's a person who's establishing the patterns who is the scientist. Yeah. And that's, that was the kind of point I was just trying to insert at the beginning, that, yeah. you know, that the kind of notion, this sort of thing we're talking about, that there's a realm that exists beyond. You know, we can divide it very clearly. There's mind, matter over there. You know, I'm over here looking at that. You know, that's my subjective perception, is that. And so the scientist who analyzes and assesses in this wonderful creative way is a, a mortal human with suppositions 
looking at that thing, analyzing, can produce amazing deductions. Yes. But there's a subjective but, process, and we know that can be very cultural. We know, for example, Pythagoras, you know, he has good numbers and bad numbers, and guess what? The bad numbers are women. You yeah. know, they're feminine. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, we have these incredible, and that's a theory of the absolute perfect But that's all about maths. That's, that's the yeah. theory that maths is that's, beyond but, the but, human, in fact, but it has that cultural supposition mm, behind but it. But Pythagoras' theorem is transcultural because it's found by the Chinese and the Indians as well as the Greeks. That's very eerie, isn't it? That, that um, you know, these theories. Well, you could say it's eerie, you could say it's kind of reassuring. I mean, it's like human beings working out the phases of the moon, and it doesn't matter where you are on the earth, you're going you're gonna to work those things oh, out. I see, so that would be, yes. But could that also be proof of these kind of fascinating communities of human consciousness, or is it always proof of. Well, I think, the thing out I think there it's very important you said community because I don't think we want to get the impression that science is done by individual scientists, although it once was it's done to by some extent. communities of individual scientists. Yes, absolutely. But I think the community bit is really yeah. essential. But I, I, we shouldn't confuse the procedures by which discoveries are made, which is what you're currently talking about, from what they finally discover. And I think there is a difference there. But, I mean, I think when people come to a talk with a subject like this, they'll, they'll have in mind things they've seen on YouTube maybe or, or, or read in various books, things like this Donald Hoffman type stuff, that actually, you know, what science has really shown us, and people know this for a long time, is, you know, because uh, there's this difference between what we perceive and, you know, what's going on at the more fundamental level, whatever you call it, that it does kind of follow that in some way we, we live in a world which is an illusion. You know, it's it, it's... Things only seem to us the way they are because of the particular user interface we have, which is the sort of Donald Hoffman kind of term. I just wanted to know what 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 do you make of that? Is there something to that that you know there is a sense in which we do have to accept the fact that in a, in a sense ev everything is an illusion in a, in, a, in really because nothing is really like the way it seems. There's well, a fundamental gap. I. I... If I were to stick to my guns and talk about you know, the, the nature of ultimate reality being mathematics, I would have to agree that everything was an illusion. But let's, let's look into that. And in a way, um, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle plays a role in, in this aspect of it. Um, because we look around, we're, we're brought up in this very complex milieu um, where we think that we can talk about where particles are and um, where they're going and at what velocities and so on. What the uncertainty principle did when it was introduced into quantum theory was to say, you're deluded. You think, and there are people like Einstein and Bohr who could never get their heads around this, big as their heads were, um, they you are deluded in thinking that a full description of the world is in terms of positions and velocities. What, what the uncertainty principle said is that you have to choose. Discuss the world in the language of part of location or discuss the world in the, in, in, in the language of momentum. And if you do not mix those two languages, you get a very simple outcome. It's when you start to use your common sense view that you need both, that the world explodes into confusion. So the uncertainty principle is in fact a great clarifier of the way we should think about the nature of the world. Choose a location language, 
choose a momentum language. Don't start a sentence in one and end up in the other. So just, I mean, this, I'm sure people say all sorts of crazy things on YouTube, and I'm not familiar with this, this person you mentioned, but um, is the claim supposed to be something like um, everything we know about the world is an illusion, or everything, nothing, nothing we, we talk about is real? I mean, is he talking about, the, what, the solar winds an illusion, that the Earth isn't an oblate sphere, you know, there aren't moons of Jupiter? You sum up, you probably... Well, I just did a panel with him here, indeed. Yes, um, indeed. His yeah. argument was that... Um, we, you know, the, the important thing is Darwinian survival. And so, therefore, the brain creates any illusion that's required to survive. Right, but that's we don't just have argument. what the brain, we don't just have what the brain gives us when we're in, you know, in, in our basic uh, unculturated situation. What we have is thousands of years of science contributing to our cultural knowledge. So, it, it, so I, when what I think exists is like not remotely what I think exists if I was just brought up in a community on the savannah. But if I think the solar wind exists, what has an argument about my brain evolving on the savannah got to do with that? I mean, we, we have, we've, you know, we know, I don't know, the tides uh, exist and we can predict them. I mean, is he saying that's an illusion and there aren't really tides? Well, so he's not saying various things are an illusion because the system doesn't work without Darwinian survivalism and right, so also yeah, doesn't okay. work without maths, actually, as well. But also, actually, on that panel, I think I, it was probably me, I confess, I asked the question, what would happen if a herd of wildebeest crashed into the tent? Would they also be an illusion? And he said, well, they might be an illusion, but he'd get out of the way. So that's the kind of, you know, it's a yeah. sort of pragmatic... I mean, I'm always a bit frustrated with this idea. Well. You set up a question like, you know, there's a, there's a, we all understand the difference between real and illusory. You know, are unicorns real? No, you know. And then someone says, well, what I mean by, you know, and I, it ends up being redefined. So we're left where we started. You know, it's not real, but I would get out of its way. Well, all right, that's what I mean by real, and if something's not real, I don't need to get out of its way. I mean, I mean, so whatever else you mean by real is fine, you know, you've got your own but special esoteric but meaning real, for it. Real is something that can be detected, isn't it? But is the imagination real? I have a question for... Yeah. Like, is that real? I mean, it has real effects in the world. Yeah, right, well, yeah, I'd say so. But does it, can it be... So it can be detected by its effects? Obviously. Yeah. The yeah. yeah. Obviously. But there are loads of things in science that you can't just see. So if you've got some but idea... that like detect... Well, you can detect, yes. But are the effects of my imagination real? Any of the effects? See, if, if I create a new religion, is that yeah. real? If I imagine a new sort of super god and tell... I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, maybe there's something I'm missing about the question, but I, I, would, I, I can't really understand why anyone would, would question that human beings have a faculty of imagination. But would the things that they imagine, the conjurings, do they then enter into another realm? So the real imagination can conjure things that we would then dismiss from the realm of general reality, or is something once thought part of our reality in some way? Well, you often, but I mean, a lot of the things that I think don't become part of reality, but... <laughs> <laughs> but some of them get taken up by some people, so if, you're, if your idea's a good one, then, or maybe a bad one, but, you know, some ideas definitely take on a life of their own beyond the individual that generates them, and, and I would say the imagination is something that's... Um, produced in the context of culture. So it doesn't make sense. I mean, you have your individual imagination, but it's the Im individual of an imagination of someone who's been brought up in a culture. Yes, and using a language to formulate right. their ideas. Yeah. Yeah, so yes, so before we open up, I just want to ask one more question, which is that, you know, one thing I find, this may be just speculative, and psychological speculation may not be a good thing to do in this context, but clearly a lot of people are very... They're attracted and intrigued by this idea that somehow the physical world 
is an illusion. It's not just that they're persuaded that it isn't real from a purely by the logic of the argument. There's something kind of like attractive about it. I don't know. Um, I just wondered if you sort of have any ideas about you know, why why is that? And, and, and you know, Joanna, you, you know, you're a novelist and everything. Um, I think there are quite a lot of people, for example, who who, who see the kind of materialistic worldview as somehow, I don't know, demeaning of our humanity, restricting of our imagination. It doesn't make these things possible. And they kind of want to deny this sort of like materialistic worldview because they because they think that if they get it's 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 too restrictive. It it sort of restricts human possibilities and so forth. But your your novelist, do you have any you threatened by scientific materialism? But I think you could also turn it the other way. Did scientific materialism say that that you know that the other thing was itself non-valid? I think that's the question. You know, if you if you start with materialism saying that you know imaginings are not part of, you know, the general kind of stuff that we're involved in, then I guess you'd get the sort of, yeah. the reaction. So I don't know, I don't know where the argument would begin with that. Yeah, so I, so I really think we need to move beyond this argument. I mean, I, I yes, would say I mean, that there's, say that exactly, there's nothing in a properly scientific beyond. attitude that would make you deny the existence or, or you know, importance of, of the things that um, we take to be important. Yeah. Emotions and, and, and experiences, I mean, there's nothing but properly scientific attitude that says those, those things don't exist. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. Tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. <laughs>